Hello and welcome back to the weekly roundtable edition of The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. This week, the Conservatives gather for their annual conference in the Manchester Central Convention Complex, otherwise known as the filming venue for Ninja Warrior UK. With fuel shortages, a critical lack of skilled workers, Brexit going ever more badly wrong, and the looming prospect of another winter of discontent, will Boris Johnson's strategy of denying reality bear fruit? Plus, it's not all bad out there. A minor surge for Germany's Social Democratic SPD during last month's elections indicates that maybe all is not lost for the Progressive Centre in Europe. And the BBC dramatises the fight against street fascism in the early 1960s in new Sunday night series Ridley Road. Does it resonate with now? And what are our favourite dramatisations of real political events? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Thanks for joining us. Let's say hello to the panel. First up, welcome back to the optimistic author of How Britain Ends, former BBC journalist and currently Chancellor of the University of Kent, Gavin Esler. Hi, Gavin. Hello. And the title is not a recommendation, it's an observation, but it's (laughs) pretty simple anyway. Yeah, yeah. The king of I told you so right at the moment. So stepping aside from Britain collapsing for a moment, the Pandora Papers landed at the weekend, the BBC, The Guardian, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, revealing the enormous concealed wealth of of world leaders as 6.4 million leaked documents showing, amongst other things, that Azerbaijan's leading family had £400 million worth of property deals. The King of Jordan did the same with £70 million of property in the UK and US. A key Conservative donor was involved in a $200 million payment described as a bribe by US authorities. And Tony Blair swerved £300,000 in stamp duty. This is both surprising and not remotely surprising. Do, do leaks like this move the political needle, do you think, Gavin? Or do they just kind of reinforce cynicism that like all politicians are in it for themselves? Well, I think the moral in all these stories is always that the scandal is not what is illegal. The scandal is what is allowed. I think everybody that you've mentioned has just, you know, followed the rules, apparently. There's nothing to see here, uh, but it's an amazing story. And therefore, I think it does reinforce uh, a degree of cynicism. It, you know, I think one of the biggest stories of my lifetime was uh, was Watergate and what happened, and it was follow the money. And if you follow the money, you find some very strange dealings, including money coming out of Vladimir Putin's Russia, going into London and ending up in the pockets of uh, some political parties in various places, including the UK. That, to me, is interesting. Now, whether any of it is uh, illegal, I don't know. I, I don't think it is. But it is allowed, and that's the scandal. Do you think that the revelations about Tony and Cherie will kind of put the kibosh in him as as the elder statesman and spokesman for reason, just as he was kind of coming back, coming back into relevance? It's kind of a gift to both the hard right, to the Corbynistas, gives everybody another reason to uh, dislike Tony Blair. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, I thought many of the things that he's been saying recently have been the elder statesman saying things uh, because he doesn't need to be re-elected and whatever, but I don't think a comeback was ever really on the cards. As for Labour's private grief, I mean, you know, the party has always been, effectively, it's usually been led by intellectuals. The socialists have been allowed to shout very loudly, but never got any power, and the trade unions paid for it. Now, all three bits of that seem to me in trouble. So I'm not quite sure where Labour is going now. Something else from the uh, the Gavin sphere. The government wants to take the threshold for repaying student loans down from £27,000 salary to £23,000, which kind of changes it from pay this back when you're able to start paying back almost immediately. As Chancellor of the University of Kent, what's your reaction? Is this reversing uh, years of uh, access to to university education? Well, look, I mean, this generation of students have had it so rough. You know, they've had COVID, which has ruined for some of them their whole experience of universities, which is actually fun most of the time. Uh, they have been denied Erasmus, so they can't study in Europe the way that they used to. They're going to come out with debt and not be able to afford housing. And now they're going to be soaked by the government. And one of the things that really strikes me, you know, is Canterbury where, and, and Medway, where we have our campuses. Uh, the university is a huge employer. We're part of the, we're, we're not some shining city on a hill. We're part of the community and a good part of the community. And those places that have universities, Lancaster being one, uh, Canterbury another, do quite well. Those that haven't, like Blackpool, which could have had one, Mm. uh, have lost out. And so students who are now having to pay for, in all sorts of ways, for uh, the the, the problems over the last couple of years, including Brexit and the end of Erasmus, I think it's very, very unfair. And I would would be wonderful if uh, somebody in the education department would actually stand up for universities and say, you know, we're quite good at this in Britain. This is something that we should actually put more money into. Meanwhile, live from Manchester, it's our woman with the lanyard and the concealed microphone, political journalist and author Marie Lacance. Hi, Marie. Hello. How's Manchester and how's day one been? 
Uh, day one's been okay. So I arrived um, yesterday on the Sunday afternoon. It's been okay. So it's been quite interesting because it's been... So because I remember, the 2019 Tory conference was just deeply unpleasant and quite weird <laughs> and everyone was really on edge. And and it was really just like not nice to be there, uh, even though I normally quite like conferences. Was This one's sort of quite relaxed. So it seems a bit emptier. And, um, and, and yet it seems, you know, I had to write my column earlier. And, the, and the, the conclusion I've reached kind of already is that you know, everything is fine and nothing matters um, at this Tory conference, effectively. Um, it's because, you know, like the Tories are doing quite well in the polls. There's not going to be an election anytime soon. And also Boris himself is kind of, you know, unassailable at the moment. So everything's, yeah, everything's just fine. Uh, which well, I'm is glad slightly... somebody's happy somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you went to the Conservative Party history quiz. Uh, yes, I did. Um, what happened? Did you win anything? Uh, no, I did not. You'll be very surprised to hear. Now, actually, you know what? I got 13 questions right out of 38, which I thought was actually mm-hmm. not that bad. It was it was actually quite interesting. Um, but yeah, no, no, I think it was quite, it really rammed home just how much time the Conservative Party has spent in power in Britain. Because there were just so many questions about, you know, and this Conservative Prime Minister and this one and that one and that one and that one. It's like, Jesus Christ, there's been so many of them. Um, because I think that that was my main takeaway um, from the mm. quiz. What were the prizes in the Conservative Party history? Because, like, did you get to, like, write a law or something? <laughs> uh, no, I, I believe it was a uh, um, lifetime subscription to the Conservative History Group Journal. Oh, right. Um, so, yes. Second prize, two lifetime subscriptions. No, I'm sure it's a very, very good magazine. Your book, haven't you heard, is the work du jour on political gossip. Did you Have you have you got any so far in, uh, in Manchester, or, or is it so sparsely attended that uh, gossip's off the menu? Uh, there's not been much, but actually, so that's quite funny because I was having a chat with another journalist yesterday who's also quite gossip-minded. And we're talking about the fact that actually, you know, because things are probably about to calm down quite a bit because, you know, Brexit is no longer the kind of um, headline issue it used to be and the pandemic is hopefully kind of shifting to the background, we may actually return to a kind of glory era of sex scandals. So I think, you know, sex scandals <laughs> have felt a bit tasteless over the past few years because there's been so much happening. So if everything goes back to normal, we should, you know, maybe have some more kiss and tell soon in Westminster, which is quite fun. You're not telling me that Matt Hancock wasn't quite enough to sate the bloodlust of the populace, are you? <laughs> No, I mean, it, it was obviously that was a, a truly great uh, sex scandal, but I think we can always do with more. Our very special guest today is Annette Dittert, Senior Correspondent and London Bureau Chief for Germany's broadcaster ARD. Welcome to the bunker, Annette. Thanks for having me. Are you still in Manchester yourself? <laughs> no, actually, I thought one day is enough. <laughs> <laughs> and I came down this morning because there's other stories waiting for me. So, yeah, yeah. but it's the first day and, I mean, it was pretty clear along which lines this will be. As Marie said, everything is fine and nothing matters. That's pretty much what I said on German TV yesterday. So, yeah, the rest I will watch from here, from London. Your reports for ARD on the supply crisis, the workforce crisis, the astonishing way Boris Johnson is just not carrying the can for any of it. What What is the general feeling in Germany about how Johnson's leadership and, and how Brexit in particular is going? Do Germans even care what's happening in Britain anymore? I mean, they do always care because they are so interested in Britain. I mean... Anyway, I mean, it's just basically a lot of astonishment, a little bit of schadenfreude, but um, mostly really astonishment of how this could happen. I mean, it was so clear from the start that there will be problems. And and I I mostly get the question these days, why is nobody on the streets? Why is nobody protesting? Why is everybody just accepting this? And that, that's a question I really don't have a real answer for. I was on Sunday, we were um, filming a, a, with a little group of Remainers who were, who were in Manchester and who were protesting and had all the right arguments, I thought. But obviously, it was a very small group of um, quite desperate people who don't cut through anymore. And that's something that in Germany, people don't really understand. Annette, since these, these crises, the fuel, the employment and so forth, have bitten, the idea that Britain should rejoin the EU somehow has it's become a little bit more current. Nobody thinks it's going to happen tomorrow, but it is at least in the in the air. Labour still regards the very question of Brexit as toxic, won't even say the B word. Do you think Germans would welcome Britain back or, or would perhaps Germany or other European countries want to veto an application from this troublemaking country that we've become? I think at the moment there's quite a big part of Germans who are rather relieved that Britain is out because there's so many other problems in Europe at the moment. I mean, the whole 
uh, big question how to deal with the Eastern European countries like Poland and Hungary who threaten the EU from within, which is maybe even more dangerous. That's something that is uh, basically enough on the plate of the Brus- uh, in Brussels for many people, for many politicians. I mean, on a, on a mentally, on an emotional level, I think a majority of the Germans are still really sad about Brexit as yeah, naive or sentimental this might sound, but it's still there's still a sense of grief, astonishment, and I think on an emotional, mental level, people would very much welcome Britain back. But politically, I can't see that at the moment, and I don't think that a German government would want uh, this country back, and it's certainly not an, a realistic option anyway, as long as we have Boris Johnson. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, uh, you wrote in the New Statesman recently that uh, that even mentioning Brexit is a taboo for Labour, and that that's actually letting Johnson off the hook as it goes so badly. But if Labour do mention it, they immediately open themselves up to a kind of a torrent of abuses of Remainers who want to uh, re- uh, reverse democracy and so on. Do you think this is just going to have to work its way through the system over a period of years and in, past, in fact decades before it can be looked at again? I think that's what what's happening, especially if Labour doesn't dare to to change direction. I personally always thought it's a big mistake that they voted for the deal in the first place because they became complicit that way, and now they're in their own trap in a way. I think they should address the problems there are with Brexit. They should say this wasn't a good idea, especially not the way it was done by Johnson. And as long as they don't dare to do that, they will always sit in a trap because they can't address the problems that um, Brexit is, the damage that Brexit is doing. And uh, they have, they automatically will be inefficient as opposition in the long run. So I think it's a huge mistake the way uh, Starmer has handled this. And I think being afraid of Johnson attacking them as Ramona's is one thing. I mean, of course, that is uh, is a very clever line he has been using, uh, Johnson. But at some point, you have to liberate yourself from this fear and just say, just name things as they are and Brexit is damaging Britain big time and I think it's high time to address that for an opposition otherwise they will not be efficient as an opposition in the long run. So let's go back to that Conservative conference and its comedy winter of discontent backdrop of various accumulating crises. Marie, in the run-up to this conference, there was a strong belief that the, the government needed another relaunch. We'd only had three months since the last one. The summer levelling up launch pretty much failed. Are you getting the sense, you're just saying that, you, that everybody thinks everything's absolutely fine, but there are rafts of conspicuous policies being um, being brought out and the Prime Minister is is trying to put a, a gloss of newness on things on the, on, on the weekend talk programmes. Are you getting the sense that they really are re- trying to relaunch themselves? I mean, not massively, to be honest. So I saw I'm actually seeing, so I think it was Josh Halliday from The Guardian who spotted it in the guide. And I think that was genuinely, like that explains this Conservative Party conference in a nutshell. So there's a fringe event, I believe, this this evening, which is literally just says that it's it's about levelling up. Um, and the description just says... Uh, gin and tonics will be served to attendees. Like that, that's literally that's it. No other, yeah, nothing else. So just and like leveling it, up your gin and tonic, not leveling up anything else. <laughs> May I freshen your drink? Yes. So I think again, yeah. So that, there's obviously lots of talk about you know leveling up and what what that means. And again, I think someone else made the point that it is quite reminiscent of the early sort of coalition years where everyone was like, "Huh, the big society. What does this mean?" Mm-hmm. Um, so that, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of basically lots of different sectors and departments saying, OK, well, you know, taking our bit of policy making, what does levelling up mean in this context? Apart from that, there's there's really not much. Obviously, you know, like we'll, we'll have to see with Boris's speech what he does end up saying. But even Rishi Sunak's speech earlier today was extremely light on pol- on the policy front. You know, he, he didn't really say anything, to be honest. So I'm not. I'm not really seeing this as a relaunch. Again, I think it it could not possibly be more sort of like business as usual. It's remarkable that you're saying there's such a sense of complacency there because the Conservatives have held a, long, a strong lead in the polls throughout the year, but it is narrowing bit by bit. And we do have this backdrop of late 70s uh, bleakness across the country. Um, Annette's report for uh, for German television cut straight from the, the conference to the queues for petrol. Are they uh, just wishing this stuff away or pretending it's not there? I, I think to an extent, yes. But again, that that is kind of something I think the Conservative Party does quite well. So I think the Labour Party always it is kind of you know glass half empty and i think the Tories are quite glass half full um because mm. even actually 2019 so i did mention that you know it, it was quite an unpleasant conference but it was still kind of odd because they were quite and, and obviously you know to be, to be fair to them they did manage to win that election uh, in, a, in a major way but it was not certain you know by october 2019 that that was going to happen and yet so you know kind of being in that conference center at the time everything was like, i think not necessarily jolly but quite bullish 
Um, mm. So, yes, yeah, so I, I, I do think that is weirdly a feature of Tory conference, but it's also, I think, you know, on a, on a very basic level. So I was talking to a special advisor yesterday. He was saying, you know, more than anything, I think it's just everyone's quite happy to see everyone else. Um, and as a result, this is basically just a bit of a jolly and a bit of a catch up. So not switch a party conference, more like a kind of a cruise. Yeah, no, no, exactly, exactly. Which, you know, you, you could argue that they could probably spend their time doing better things, uh, but, but that's certainly what it feels like. It was remarkable to see Sunak kind of insisting that the supply chain chaos and the lack of workers are actually indicative of long-term benefits because they're going to force companies to change and that the whole line has been, we're not going to intervene because uh, magically wages will rise. Do you hear this being queried at all anywhere within conference or in the wider conservative sphere? So far, not massively, to be honest. But then, mm. but then again, I think it, it, it's a weird. I think a story MPs and I mean MPs in general, I think tend to be quite happy to go with their leadership if their leadership is doing quite well. Uh, but I think that's especially true of the Conservative Party. And yes, yeah, I was talking to a journalist yesterday who was trying to write a story. I think trying to cause a bit of trouble on the tax rises. And yeah, and he said he was like, actually just talked to quite a lot of these MPs and could not get anyone to you know give me a spicy quote on this. And he was like, honestly, if you could not drive a wedge between conservative MPs on the issues of tax, like, yeah. what can you drive a wedge on? Um, so no, I think again that they're just having quite a pleasant time at risk of repeating myself. I think no, no one really has the stomach for a fight. I think at least not for the next few days. We'll give it to them. Gavin, Johnson got a, a, a mild and a genteel kicking from Andrew Marr on Sunday morning, particularly on that question of Johnson insisting that wages are rising when figures show that they aren't. Did you think Marr did a good job? Do you think, is, is anybody pinning Boris Johnson down at the moment when Boris Johnson can be found? Uh, not really. I mean, I think that this is a very difficult time to be a a British broadcaster in the political system that that we have now, uh, and I'd, so therefore, if if I <laughs> if I think where do I get my news that tells me what I see with my own eyes about the United Kingdom, I tend to go to Private Eye, for example, a satirical magazine, which says we've gone from panic buying to panic lying, which has seemed to me to be pretty much what what we've been hearing. Or I look at uh, you know Dutch newspaper cartoons showing. Boris Johnson struggling to tow a broken down Brexit global Britain truck or the New York Times going through line by line. We've got, you know, long lines at the pumps, uh, failure to distribute food and so on. And I was struck also by Finland's foreign minister, sorry, former prime mm. minister, uh, Alexander Stubb, who tweeted that Brexit is, uh, it's really sad to see what Brexit is doing to a country that used to be great. It's the biggest mistake a modern nation has had on itself in recent history. And then you look at the, at the British newspapers, which say Boris steps in to save Christmas. So we have a disjunction between what, what I see and what foreigners mm. see and report and what we often see, not always, but what we often see in quite sec large sections of the media. Is, I mean, is there anything we can do about that domestically or do we have to rely on the, the internationalisation of news? Because one of the most shared and popular stories this week was the New York Times' kind of anatomization of the current problem, which, you know, often because it's treated as a foreign report, one feature covers everything as opposed to, you know, you go to our news outlets and there's a thousand stories about each different thing. Is there, you know, is there any way for us to kind of perhaps encourage our existing media to give us more of a realistic picture of this stuff uh, that is very difficult and as, as, you, as you say i mean i go to the new york times i go to th these uh, these other things but not everybody does you know and most people frankly do not watch the sunday talk shows so hmm. anybody who wanted to see what you know the mild kicking or whatever it was when you, you suggested that andrew meyer gave the prime minister probably hasn't seen it but they might have seen i mean there was another bbc interview which i saw where boris johnson said something about you know don't focus on cancer outcomes or life expectancy, just wage growth. Now, I think if anybody uh, and half of us either know somebody with cancer, have had cancer or be treated with cancer, mm -hmm. friends and relatives, with cancer, I think a lot of people who see that clip would be offended by it, um, deeply offended by it, actually. So some of this might cut through, but the, the sort of overall narrative is not being made, for example, by the Labour Party, who um, who have got an open goal on Brexit, but they daren't say the word. It's, it is like Lord Voldemort. You're not supposed to say his name. So that is a, that is a problem, it seems to me. Before all that, though, I mean, recent polling does indicate that voters are increasingly turning against Brexit. YouGov recently had only 18% of British people thinking Brexit is going well. That was down from 25%. Boris Johnson has been trying to claim everything from the petrol crisis to the, the fact that we're going to have to call 120,000 pigs due to a lack of abattoir workers. Been trying to pin it all on this necessary post-Brexit transition, so-called. Do you think that 
voters are buying this idea that this is all transitional trauma? I don't think they are, actually. I I really find it difficult to believe that they are, Uh, especially since, you know, this was, you you said at the beginning of the program that that I can do a few I told you so. I mean, I wrote a book about this two years ago and said that basically uh, about 40% of our uh, agricultural workers work in food processing, about 63% in the least glamorous things, including, you know, the backbreaking jobs, the butchery, the meat processors association, 95% of vets in slaughterhouses in Britain were EU citizens. Now, it is therefore not surprising that we may have problems with getting turkeys on our plate for Christmas or or, or getting beef. Uh, The problem is, again, though, if you buy a rubbish car, you probably want to stick with it and you don't like people criticising it. And I see the, the, the problem with the, the Labour Party and the opposition, but they have to start mentioning it. And they can mention it in a fairly obvious way and say, you know, Northern Ireland's part of the United Kingdom. They don't have these problems. They have lot of, lots of other problems, but they don't have these problems. That's because effectively, for in customs terms, they're in the single market. So uh, the argument takes a long time to get through, but I think it is getting through finally. Anna, is there a equivalent kind of event to the, to this Tory conference in in Germany? Do the parties have conferences in the in the same style, kind of you know either the backslapping Conservative version or the bloodletting Labour version? Not really. I mean, they do have these conferences, but they're much less of a show event. As in general, German politics are so much more boring. Even now, <laughs> I love boring. I, I could do with a lot more boring in this country. I have a lot of English friends who say that recently. Um, it's a bit, yeah, it, it's different. It's it's not that kind of a show event. So this happens, but it's more, yeah, it's it's quieter in general. <laughs> hmm. What do Germans think of Boris Johnson as a figure? Because he's, you know, he's such a cartoon character. How does this constant harking back to Churchill sit with like ordinary German people? I think nobody would ever think of. Uh, Johnsonist <laughs> Churchill um, beyond this little island. Mm. I, no, I've never even heard that 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 has uh, stuck with somebody there. I think Germans mostly see him with horror and are really appalled. Mm. Um, it's more like a Trump figure, and I mean something that is rather avoided in the press here. That comparison, and it's not, and you can't really do it on a on a. It's not really the same kind of political figure, of course, but the lying, the constant lying and the the bullshitting and the obfuscation of truth, that's something that people see in Germany. I mean, if you look just at the at this fuel crisis, I mean, the way they changed the spin within a week. First, the fuel crisis had absolutely nothing to do with Brexit. Then the Europeans had the same problems, which was proven wrong pretty quickly. Then suddenly, Sunday morning at Andrew Mars, Johnson says, no, this is actually what we always wanted with Brexit, disruption of the current system. And so this is great because your wages will grow, which is obviously economic illiteracy. And now, since since yesterday evening, it's suddenly the government can't do anything for you guys. Sorry, um, uh, this is your problem, uh, businesses. The supply chain problems is nothing I can do to fix it, which is another spin, apparently, because Ms. Truss has said, has said the same thing yesterday evening at a Telegraph event in Manchester. So this is just crazy because it's it's I think it's meant to it's 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 born out of helplessness and despair maybe panic lying um but it's also a strategy it's like really constantly confusing people and I've we've done a lot of interviews in Manchester with butchers and we were at petrol stations for a report on German television and you could see a lot of people do get it slowly but a lot of people are generally confused because they don't know what's the truth anymore and if you don't have the truth as a reference base, it's really difficult to to have a functioning democracy. And I think that's what's the most worrying thing at the moment. And I think that's something people in Germany see, and they clearly related to the Johnson government, rightly so, I think. Do you have kind of Johnsonian, Trumpian demagogues in Germany on the fringes of current politics? Yeah, I mean, Germany isn't isn't totally different in that terms. I mean, it's, let's say, 10 years back, maybe. <laughs> I mean, there are figures, in, especially in the Christian Democratic uh, Party, that have tried to copy this style of, of bullshitting in politics, like figures like Friedrich Merz, who's not very well known here and probably will not be a big figure either. But there have been attempts to do that, but it doesn't go down well with the German voters. So it didn't go very far. 
But on the other hand, you have the Bild Zeitung, which is like the big tabloid in Germany that has started to use similar methods to the Daily Mail and the Sun lately, has tried to do campaigns against the Greens that have been pretty efficient. So I wouldn't say Germany isn't vulnerable to these kind of um, yeah politics, uh, but we are not there yet. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I mean, you've been based in the UK since 2008, some of the most tumultuous years in, certainly in my lifetime in Britain, where, where the political culture seems to have changed irrevocably and the country's done its best to torch its relationship with, with, with EU countries. As someone who's you know, as someone who's not a British citizen, did it, did it surprise you the speed at which this strange change took over? And do you think there's a, there is, I mean, we sort of touched on it earlier, is there a way to repair it that maybe goes outside of the political cast of characters? I, I found it really shocking the speed in which this country has turned from a yeah from a solid democracy, which it probably never was, but it mm. at, least, at least felt like that. But to see how how quickly at what speed this all fell apart, and I mean the worst parts of this decline hasn't really been uh, in the out in the public yet either. I mean the way the electoral commission now, the voting system, the judicial review is attacked. I mean, they're constantly trying to erode the rule of law quietly in the background. Jonathan Friedland just wrote a good article on it in The Guardian, I think, last week, pointing to this, because beyond or behind all that noise, way more dangerous things are happening at the moment, I think. And I've been in, before I came to Britain, I was the correspondent for ARD in Poland for a few years. So I've seen it in Poland how this starts, this kind of eroding democracy. And that's exactly what's happening here. And almost nobody really sees it. I mean, if you look at the wider public, it's not being reported. And it's dangerous, I think. And that has shocked me, the speed and, and how fast this has all happened. I think the system, he has been particularly vulnerable, not having written constitution. And I mean, you know all of that. And Gavin mm. wrote in his wonderful book about the good chaps um, theory and that Britain always relied on people behaving and being moral integer. And when you don't have that anymore, then suddenly things fall apart far quicker, far faster than you might have thought before. Gavin, we might be about to very shortly have the next round of Britain versus the EU uh, as the Conservative Party is floating the idea of triggering Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which allows parts of the deal to be set aside in case of serious economic, societal or environmental difficulties. But it doesn't de uh, define what those difficulties are. So Lord Frost can kind of pull them out of his ear. If it were to happen, is it simply to throw a bone to the Conservative Party or is there something real there going wrong with the Northern Ireland Protocol? Well, what's interesting here is the serious economic, societal or environmental difficulties are in Great Britain. They're less so in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland, I mean, it can always, there can always be trouble there. But actually, you know, the queues for petrol are in the rest of the United Kingdom, not there. And one of the, one of the things that astonishes me, actually, to go back to uh, uh, what Annette has been saying, is who's been in charge for 11 years? Who was it who negotiated the Northern Ireland Protocol? So when we're talking about levelling up or the problems with Brexit, who, Lord Frost recommended this deal mm. as excellent. Um, so he's now saying that the deal he negotiated painstakingly and told us it was great was, was wonderful. And that goes back to what Annette was saying about what is true anymore. I mean, another German philosopher, Hannah Arendt, a German Jewish philosopher who's absolutely brilliant on this, said that, that, that this is part of a totalitarian mindset to convince people that what is, what is true or what is false is beyond their understanding. And so with the Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which sounds very difficult to understand, what we have is the people who negotiated it and got the EU to agree to it and said it was good, now say it's not any good. And that is entirely about keeping unity within the Conservative Party. It's got nothing really to do with the people of Northern Ireland. So uh, it, we may swallow it as, uh, as people, but these self-inflicted wounds are now being blamed on other people. Just before we move on, Marie, you're young and full of energy and full of vigour. Uh, you're not worn out like me. Are you looking forward to your first proper British crisis of uh, starvation and the dead unburied? A proper winter of discontent, the great <laughs> British experience. You know, like one of those terrible Christmas things where it's just a dog with antlers on and it's not really a reindeer. That's what you're looking forward to this autumn. 
I'm really not. I mean, you know what? I'm turning 30 at the end of this year. And I really thought, you know, like the movie, like 30, flirty and thriving was kind of on my <laughs> mood board. And I, I'm not sure I'm going to thrive at all, really, Andrew. I'm just not sure I'm going to thrive. Um, so, no, I, I'm not I'm not looking forward to it at all. And, but, you know, the, the more serious answer as well being that uh, I'm self-employed. I'm a, I'm a freelance journalist. And I think uh, my like the amount of money I earn, to be blunt, normally sort of like depends quite heavily on how well the industries I work in are doing. And they're not doing very well at all at the moment. Um, and, you know, and things like um, energy bills um, costs are going way up. So I'm not sure even like financially, to be honest, looking at this winter, I'm like, actually, should I should I get a job? Like, is that a thing I should start consider doing? Which I don't want to do at all, to be clear. I'm currently recording a podcast from a hotel bed. You know, it is not in my interest to get a job. Um, but, but yeah, no, I, I am not looking forward to it at all. Now, Germany. Coalition talks are continuing after the country's recent federal election, which was quite an encouragement to us uh, wet centrists, uh, as the, the SPD did rather well. What does it all mean? And what is the likely government uh, that may emerge from all of this? Annette is going to explain it all for us. But first, we also spoke to The Economist's Berlin Bureau Chief, Tom Nuttall, for his take. Hi, I'm Tom Nuttall. I'm the Berlin Bureau Chief for The Economist. So the result was a close one. Um, The Social Democrats came in first place with uh, close to 26% of the vote, narrowly ahead of the Christian Democratic bloc, that's Angela Merkel's party, um, on 24%. Um, So there's sort of 1.5, 1.6 percentage points between the two of them. So it was a, a clear win, but certainly a narrow one. And where does that leave us? Well, in arithmetical terms, there are three viable coalitions that can be put together to get a majority from this result. Only two of them, I think, are really likely. Both of those coalitions would have the Green Party and the Free Democrats, which is a kind of small liberal pro-business party, as junior partners. One of them would have the Social Democrats on top. One of them would have the Christian Democrats on top. Um, And the first of those with the Social Democrats, that would be led by Olaf Scholz, who is the current finance minister in the the current government, which is a grand coalition of the two big parties. And the second of those led by the Christian Democrats would have a man called Armin Laschet as chancellor. And the third option, which I think is considerably less likely, is a continuation of what we have at the moment, uh, the so-called grand coalition of the Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats. The difference would be that the parties would be swapped around because now the Social Democrats are the biggest party and Olaf Scholz would be chancellor. But I don't think neither of those parties want to stay in government with each other. Nobody else wants them to be in government with each other either. So I think we're looking at one of these three-way coalitions led either by Olaf Scholz or by Armin Laschet. So it's going to take a bit of time to put this next coalition together um, for several reasons. Um, Perhaps the most important one is that almost certainly this is going to be the first three-way coalition that Germany will have had since the 1950s. So it's basically a completely new experience for everyone that's involved. We're also not going to have the kind of consistent figure of Angela Merkel at the top because she will be leaving office once we have a new government in place. Um, So, you know, the expectations are that we're looking probably at the end of the year to get a government in place. Um, I mean, the favoured option, the so-called traffic light coalition led by Olaf Scholz, uh, Mr. Scholz has said that he would like to have a government in place by Christmas. Um, Germany has the presidency of the G7 starting in January, and I think they would quite like to have a government in place by then. But what normally happens in Germany is that these talks just follow their own logic um, and everybody has to be satisfied. It's very complicated. They have to build trust. They have to dish out all of the jobs. They have to come to terms on all sorts of policy, policy disagreements. This stuff can take a long time. And everybody remembers the last time in 2017 when there was an effort to put together a three-way coalition that collapsed when the the Free Democrats suddenly walked out. So then they had to start from scratch. And in the end, the whole thing took six months to put together. Um, That's probably not going to happen this time. It's hopefully not going to happen this time, but you can't rule it out. Um, And what happens while we wait for this new government? Well, in essence, um, we carry on as usual. So Angela Merkel will remain the chancellor, a sort of caretaker chancellor at the head of a caretaker government um, with full executive authority. Um, And they will remain in place until the other parties are able to come to terms and to form their own government and to be sworn in um, as the successor to Angela Merkel. We just carry on as before, basically. (laughs) 
Annette Dittert, have we witnessed a sea change or a major change of direction for German politics, do you think? I'm not sure yet. I mean, it depends very much on who will eventually form the coalition, the government, and who will be the chancellor. At the moment, it looks very much as if it will be a so-called traffic light coalition. That means the Green, the Liberal Party, and uh, yeah, a social democratic chancellor, which is Olaf Scholz, who would be heading this. Um, I think it's at the moment the most likely option, which wouldn't be a major change from what we had before in uh, in Germany. Um, which has to do with a very strange thing that Angela Merkel did to her own party, which ruined her the party now in a way. Mm. <laughs> because what, what happened was that Angela Merkel throughout her 16 years moved the conservative party, her party, so much and so far into the center that now in these elections, the social democratics or the rather left center party candidate could easily pose as Merkel and say, I'm the new Merkel. And he even... Uh, mimicked her to the point that he let himself being photographed with her famous hand gesture of this diamond thing, which was meant a little bit as a joke, I think, uh, originally, but then became into a kind of campaign feature, became a campaign feature. And um, and I think he, he won, I mean, he won the most votes, which is still not very much compared to what the Social Democrats got earlier. But it's... Um, it's astonishing that he could sort of mimic Merkel and take over her role by being in a completely different party. And that, again, shows how much the CDU, the Conservative Party, has been moved by her to the centre. She basically was a social democratic chancellor in a way, and her party is now paying the price for it because her party has basically a total meltdown and uh, will have to totally and completely reinvent itself which might mean that it will be will be pushed go back further to the right where it was before which could be worrying for germany how much of that is down to their candidate armin laschet or, or, or was it purely merkel accidentally doing a reverse tony blair on herself <laughs> that's a very good of, way of describing it i think it was both i mean merkel's merkel played a big part in this i think but it was also laschet's personality i mean he's a particular type of a very regional figure of the old West Germany. I mean, like if you would tr- try to translate that into English, uh, yeah, into into an English mind, it's something, it's a, he's somebody who you would encounter like a village grandee or the chairman of a local water polo club, showing mm. up with a cigar, always a little bit off. And, and there's are, you, the, are we thinking golf club or rotary club here? water polo rather. I mean, a bit mm. lower down the kind of... <laughs> Not as posh. Uh, in I don't think anybody plays water polo at all in this country. It's too cold, yeah. but I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. <laughs> but you know what I mean, I guess. I mean, in, in, in Germany, you would say he could be the, the chairman of a regional carnivals club or something like that. I mean, he's just <laughs> a very regional figure who didn't who did make lots of mistakes during his campaign. He had a very, very weak campaign because he's one of these figures. I mean, it's hard to translate that for people who, who have never lived in Germany. It's it's a kind of laissez-faire, like, oh, well, if this doesn't work, something else will work. And he seemed pretty much careless throughout the whole campaign, made a lot of, had a lot of gaffes. I mean, started to laugh when the floods, uh, when, when there was a speech by the German president, he stood in the background after the big floods had happened that destroyed so many homes and killed so many people. And he was photographed standing in the background laughing out loud. That was the first big mistake and others followed. So he wasn't seen as a serious candidate. Merkel only half-heartedly supported him. So I think it has, it was both. It was Merkel doing a reverse Tony Blair, which is a great way of putting it, and sort of completely leading her part. I mean, leaving a party behind that doesn't know who, who they are. And then the, the combination with Laschet being such a weak candidate. I'd love to live in a country where laughing at inappropriate times <laughs> in the middle of floods when people are suffering actually gets you punished at the polls. Exactly. Like here, where people just go, fine. Yeah. No, here it, 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 we're beyond that. But in Germany, this is still, a, it, it wasn't a good thing to do. <laughs> How much of a comeback was it for the SPD? Because they were on about 15% for most of this year, weren't they? I mean, it's a big comeback for the SPD, especially as um, they never thought they would win these elections during the biggest, the bigger part of that campaign. But if you look at it uh, from a broader, from a, from a broader in a broader way, I mean, it's the it's the worst result the SPD ever had in history. Twenty five percent. They used to be one of the two big tent parties, the big kind of. So 
the big theme of these elections is, and and that's why it's it's more or less similar to other elections these these in these years, is fragmentation. I mean, Germany has a very fragmented uh, voter uh, political landscape now. I mean, it, the CDU, the other big tent party, couldn't get more than twenty three, twenty four percent. Um, and and the big uh, and the social democrats had basically the same result. So now they will form a three party coalition, uh, with both the other parties having something around twelve percent, twelve fourteen percent. So um, this is a different situation from what we had. It was something that that was coming for a long time, and Merkel more or less stopped that or, or put everybody to sleep <laughs> over a time. Um, but it's now there, and this will make German politics more complicated. But I think if if Scholz, the social democratic candidate, will be the chancellor together with the liberals and the greens, I think overall it will be very similar politics to what we have with Merkel. Gavin, commentators in Britain say, well, a coalition could take months to put together. It's going to be paralysis and it's going to take ages. Uh, in Britain, the Conservatives and the Lib Dems put a deal together in five days. This is actually normal across most of Europe, isn't it? You take a long time to put your, your coalition together. Do you think we should be learning from this, that actually politics is not just about the vote and the result, but it's about the negotiation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I argue very strongly in uh, how Britain ends uh, for some kind of proportional representation, which inevitably will lead to coalitions. And I was uh, I was talking to someone at the Labour Party conference who was arguing the same position. And she told me there are only three countries in Europe that do not have some kind of PR system. They are Belarus, Vatican, and England, because Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales do have kind mm. of PR. Um, and, and also Germany's got something even more special. It's got a basic law. It's got a constitution, which I think British scholars also helped to write. So it kind of says how things should work out. And the third thing that Germany's got going for it is Angela Merkel is still there. I'm a big Merkel Merkel fan. Uh, I, I met her, spent some time with her a couple of years ago, and she she was very amusing off camera, very, very amusing, very at what you'd expect on camera. But she did make me think afterwards, I thought, what, what is it? There's something, I know what it is. It's my very first German lesson because my very first German lesson was to learn um, uh, adjectives, Spatzam, Treu, Direkt, Zauber. It was all these sort of rather good um, adjectives about being thrifty and uh, mm. honest and, and straightforward. And she did strike me. I mean, I know she's got all the political skills and so on, but she did strike me as someone who connected with people, perhaps for that reason, and because she was, uh, as Annette says, right in the middle of German politics. Marie, um, I always ask you about France, even though you don't live there and you only visit there <laughs> now and again. Well, I mean, the German election seemed to signal this shift to the left. The SPD did better. Greens did really well. In France, the Socialist Party doesn't seem to be regaining any ground after a, quite a bad performance in 2017. Why do you think that is? Oh, um, I mean, that, that, there's a bunch of reasons. I think the first one is uh, the, the, the obvious beloved one, which is that the left um, loves to hate itself. And so I think they've just been very good at fighting each other for the past few years. Um, but also, I think it is actually quite structural because, you know, when you look back, which feels weird because I think Macron now feels more like a centre-right politician. But let's not forget that the last election, he very much was presenting himself as a, as a true centrist. Um, and actually got quite a few centre-left people, like quite prominent and less prominent sort of like centre-left politicians to join en marche. So, you know, so those people basically all left. Then there's also the fact that Mélenchon has been kind of taking people on the kind of, you know, left-left side um, of the party for two elections now, nearly the third now. Um, even though, I mean, he's more controversial now, I think, um, than he was the last election and the one before that. Um, but yes, yeah, so, you know, they're gone. People are after the Greens as well. So I think the left is effectively completely fractured and there's not really been an argument yet for, you know, what, what does the party stand for? Because I think the more traditional right in France is not doing great either, but it's done an OK job at saying, OK, well, you know, we do want things that are not what Macron is doing, you know, like properly right wing things, but equally you know, we do not want to be the National Front. So there's there's a bit more space on the right, I guess, whereas on the left in front right now, there's basically no space. Like what 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 yeah, what space do you inhabit? You know, that there's no gap in the market really for a major party um there. So yeah, no, best of luck to them, but I'm not seeing them sort of like recover, at least not by the time of the next election. Annette, climate change was much more central to the German election than it is to British politics at the moment. Um, the Greens want Germany to be net zero earlier than the current 2045 target. The the FDP want to push it back to 2050. This is something that, you know, 
progressives and wet centrists like me kind of dream of the idea that this could be central to the debate. Do you, do you think that with Germany's sort of outsized influence within Europe, it's going to become more the, the, the you know, the number one issue in European politics? possibly as a result of this election? Yeah, I mean, I, I very much hope so, but I'm not really sure we ha- because, I mean, the Greens have done much less uh, good than they thought originally. I mean, they were really high up in the polls in the beginning and you would expect from a country like Germany where climate change plays such a role in in people's minds. I mean, we had the floods just recently there, which were, prob- I mean, really horrible Um but at the end of the day, at the end of this campaign, the Greens just got 14.8%, which is not very mm. much. And they now find themselves in a coalition with uh, the liberals, who are more like right-wing liberals, small small state, low-tax kind of party, which will pretty much stop a lot of their efforts, I think. And with the Social Democratic uh, Party as probably the chancellor leading this coalition, who's also rather on the fiscal I mean, on the kind of careful, cautious fiscal side. Um, and I'm not really sure how big their influence will be at the end of the day. So this is something we have to wait and see. I'm, I'm, I'm rather skeptical, I must say, and I do find that pretty disappointing. I didn't really think that the Greens would, would get so few votes after this campaign in these times. There are a million things we could talk about around this, including the, the fact that both AFD and d both saw, saw their share of votes fall. There's Nord Stream 2. There's all kinds of support. Is it possible to say that even though the coalition hasn't been finalised yet and we don't know whether they're going to get, what is it, Jamaica or Kenya or mm-hmm. Germany or other combinations, Abyssinia, whatever? No, 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 no. It's, it's traffic light or Jamaica. <laughs> right, okay. Easier than that. <laughs> is there any way to sort of like project what this is going to mean for relations with Britain? I mean, you've gone. You've you've explained to us how there's a kind of weariness in Germany at Britain's behaviour. Mm, I think what whoever will form the government, uh, the stance towards Britain will be pretty much the same. A very mm. principled pro-European policy. Policy. I mean, neither of these parties has ever questioned uh, the importance of the EU for Germany and vice versa. And um, and whether it's uh, Laschet or um, Scholz at the end of the day as a chancellor, it doesn't really make a big difference. I think both all the parties that are likely to form a government at the moment do have the same kind of, yeah, slightly flabbergasted um, <laughs> attitude when it comes to Britain and the way that, especially now, I mean, with Frost attacking the EU again with over the Northern Ireland pro- Protocol, that's something that is really seen People are just sort of scratching their heads over there, what's going on here, because to now open that thing again and come back again and say, this is a horrible protocol. I mean, as Gavin said earlier, I mean, this is something the Brits uh, negotiated that way. That was their deal. And nobody understands that anymore or takes it even seriously. And I think in in, in Germany and, and neither in Britain, uh, in, in, in Brussels, so... I think it doesn't, I mean, for Britain, it doesn't really matter who's who's going to form the government because the attitude, um, yeah, the, the, the kind of closeness to, to the EU and to Europe uh, and the feeling that Britain is really not acting very um, rationally in, in all this at the moment will be the same. Finally, a bit of telly with some politics in it. The BBC's new Sunday night series, Ridley Road, takes a look at the neo-Nazi movement in 1960s England, specifically focusing on the National Socialist movement. It does it through a rather call-the-midwife-style romance story in which a young Jewish woman, played by Agnes O'Casey, flees Manchester in pursuit of a chap who's done her wrong and ends up in the boiling stew of East End politics with her uncle and aunt, played by Eddie Marson and Tracy Ann Oberman, who run the Jewish resistance from the titular market in Dalston, where I sometimes get my tomatoes. Marie and Annette are far too busy at Tory conference to watch it, but Gavin, you watched it, didn't you? It's very Sunday night on BBC One, but the political series is quite relevant. What, what, what did you think? Actually, I was disappointed by it. I thought it was a missed opportunity. I thought the, the theme, I mean, Colin Jordan and the British Nazis in the 1960s and the shocking, you know, they, they actually had Nazi flags and, and, and swastikas and all that, uh, and how that impacted particularly on the Jewish community is a, is a great story. It just wasn't very well told. I mean, I thought the, the, the direction was quite bizarre. There were some weird bits, for instance, with the, uh, the hero Agnes O'Casey, who was, who was great, per- mm. you know, great actor, actor. But she was sort of driven around by her uncle and kind of dumped in a disused train yard where she chased the boyfriend and 
that you know they could have met somewhere else. Yeah, for <laughs> just, no good reason other than a dramatic a taxi cab ride. Yeah, but once you once you sort of see that, you then think it's it, it, it's a bit ridiculous. So, uh, but I mean, you know, the period pieces, the idea of of post war. Britain, post-war London, and mm. just the kind of mess and the poverty, uh, uh, poverty of expectations and so on. I think that was well done. And that's why I thought it was a missed opportunity. And actually coming to terms with the fact that uh, the face of uh, far right wing politics in Britain has changed just because they've got smarter. Yeah, it was disturbing how, I mean, the political side is disturbing how familiar it seems. And the stage meetings in which disconnected, adrift Londoners are sat in empty church halls while someone tells them that they need to take back control of their town and they need to take their country back was quite, I thought, quite chilling. Yes, it, it was. But, it, it, you know, Steve McQueen's small acts talking about the Caribbean experience, essentially, mm. in, in, in London, sort of the same time in Notting Hill, was just so much subtler and therefore so much more powerful. And and it's not to do with uh, the difference in the stories. It's the difference in the way in which the stories were told. And that's why I think I won't be watching episode two, unfortunately. I can't imagine the production meeting where it's, it's like, we've got Nazis in London, but it's not interesting enough. We need to add some love stories to this. I know. I I thought it looked fantastic. And there's a great mix of restaged, remounted demonstrations and so forth, intercut with period news footage in a way that they've got the grading right. So it kind of all feels like part of a whole. But for me, it was miles, streets behind Babylon Berlin, the fantastic German series, which treats the rise of the the Nazis in Germany with real incisiveness. And and the characters are are real. You don't get this kind of slightly saccharine treatment of um, the kind of mapping of a romance over these these, these real historical events. Gavin, what are your favourite? Uh, in this in this genre in this world of you know historical events transformed into drama do you know i i i think um i was thinking after i i saw it i mean i i loved steve the steve mcqueen small acts uh, i thought that was brilliant absolutely brilliant uh, and opened my eyes but the ones that really stick with me you might laugh jojo rabbit which is oh, yeah. humanizing a, a you know a, it was a little boy in, in hitler's germany towards the end of the war uh, who's in the in the Nazi youth and his mother, who's effectively in the resistance? It was just funny and brilliant, and it it, it was it just touched me in a way that, and it the relationship touched me in in a way that this didn't. And the other one, which is also a slightly odd film, uh, but absolutely brilliant, is Pan's Labyrinth, which is Guillermo del Toro, set in nineteen forty four Spain, and uh, it, it it's it's a very odd film. You have to watch it, but it's also tinged with coming to terms. With fascism, and uh, uh, to me, those 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 were the two. They're not documentaries, not documentary style at all, but brilliant movie making and storytelling. And as I just mentioned, Babylon Berlin, which was kind of a it was like a niche show here. I think it was on Sky Atlantic or something like that. But those of us who saw it absolutely loved it. How big was that in Germany? Was it event television? Oh yeah, no, that was one of the biggest television events in Germany for a long time. And uh, I must admit that normally I'm rather a bit wary of Germany's attempts to do period television or drama. The British are so much better at it. But in this one, I think they really, they really did it and nailed it because it really brings you back the atmosphere of Weimar, the 30s and of Berlin, which is which is still so tangible there. If you go to Berlin, it's still all there somehow. And they managed to really capture that so well in this in this series. It's really worth a watch. And uh, yeah, I know it was a big event in Germany, and I think rightly so. One of the things I really loved about it was the fact that it covered the rise of the Nazis without implying that that, that Nazism was the only thing happening in Germany at that time. You know, there were all, the, all the currents of communism, socialism, trade unionism, but also culture nightclubs the arts jazz uh mm-hmm. you know sexuality all of these things were in that series which made it so much more rounded and so much more exciting it's the absence of that stuff in in ridley road that i find pretty disappointing marie how about you what are your uh, political tv favorites um, i think it's actually probably going to be pride um the movie mm. uh which purely because it just made me cry so much like I, I would say it made me cry an embarrassing amount but no, i mean if, if you've not seen it you know it's about um it's about the gay community uh, in the 80s in Thatcher's Britain. Is he going to Wales to help the miners uh, during the miners' strike? Um, and, you know, and, and it's kind of, and it's actually you know, all based on a true story as well, but kind of, you know, on all these gay kids basically helping these, at first, of like completely bewildered um, Welsh miners and then eventually kind of, you know, friendship striking, etc. Um, and it, you know, and, and it's just a beautiful movie and it's so funny and it's so, yeah, no, it, it's very good. I actually, it's slightly embarrassing the second time. So the first time I watched it, I 
busy choked on my own tears at the ending. Um, and then I watched it again a few months later and started crying as the movie began. Just that preemptively <laughs> started crying. Um, so, yes, I, I would say Pride. That's my favourite one. There you go. The politics weepy. It's a new genre that needs inventing. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker. And as usual, it's time for Escape Routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books, whatever else, they've been acting as a soothing and calming substitute for the bruising world of politics. Now, Marie, you've been stuck in Manchester for a couple of days, but what have you been uh, salving your mind with over the past few weeks? Um, so what's been saving me actually from conference season is Please Miss by Grace Slavery, which is not out yet. This is approved, but it's coming out in early 2022. And it's a, tra- basically it's a transition memoir, technically, from yeah this quite prominent um, transgender academic. But it's so much more than that. It's like it's, she's an incredibly funny writer as well. Um, but, but also, I think, one of the sort of, you know, like cleverest people I follow on Twitter. So, yeah, no, just incredible book and it's really nice to read something as well i think by a trans person that is about transitioning and stuff but also about so much more than that so yeah please miss by gross slavery coming out in early 2022 get your pre-orders in right now gavin how about you well uh, i suppose the thing that's most cheered me up in the past few days is watching the mitchells and the machines versus the machines or whatever it's called which is a new movie for aimed at a Slightly younger audience, I suspect, but it's essentially about a family that managed to thwart the culture of uh, the mobile phones and all the robots and robotic things that we do because of uh, the way in which the world is now constructed. And it made me laugh. Hmm. Tell us more about it. What's it on? Where, where is it? Is it a, a fly on the wall documentary or what? No, no, it's not. It's not. It's a. It's a sort of. Uh, it's an animation, and oh. it's. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a BAFTA member, so I saw it as a preview. But I think it's now available on Netflix, and it's going to be uh, coming to a cinema near you. But it's it is it's very amusing, and it is something that spans all ages because you have the. The, the, the parents who are permanently on their phones and suddenly, guess what? The phones take over, uh, or at least a particular phone takes over and the wicked phone has to be defeated by the Mitchells family. It's very fun. Sounds like Terminator 2 for kids. It is, it is very, very much like that. It's got a happy ending as well. So does Terminator 2. Annette, how about you? What's been your favourite uh, books or TV or music or so forth that's been helping you to deal with events lately? You said musical as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because I just went because I thought I really needed now to a musical, which I would normally not do, and that was Anything Goes at the Barbican, and I really enjoyed it. Oh, right. It so well produced. And it was like after all this these lockdowns, I mean, just to see an audience really there, just cheering, laughing, and, and crying, it was just great. I can full-heartedly recommend it. It's the most fun I've I've had for years. <laughs> There's a lot to be said in it to, for being in a room full of lo- a lot of people having a good time. It was great. It was really like rediscovering that and everybody was so happy just to be there. And it was just fantastic. Well, mine uh, actually comes recommended from top podcast, The Bunker. We did one a few weeks ago on the book, Paul Kenyon's Children of the Night, which Arthur Snell uh, read and interviewed Paul about this. This is a history of Romania. And it is the book is astonishing. It's like a Wes Anderson movie. It is the description of this country, which has been through invasion, revolution. The idea of um, manifest destiny runs through the Romanian people. They draw the history right back to uh, the original Romans. Dracula looms large in it and comes out of it quite well, I thought. Quite a very reasonable fellow, Dracula, apart from all the impaling. Most of 20th century Romania doesn't come through quite so well. There's a strong strain of pretty monstrous anti-Semitism running through the modern history of the country. And yet for all that, it is just, you know, an absolutely dazzling and and wild story. And uh, I recommend the book. I also recommend look back on our list of podcasts and listen to Paul Kenyon talking about it because it's really excellent. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you, Gavin Esler. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marie Lacant. Thanks for having me. And thank you, our special guest, Annette Dittert. Thank you so much. It was fun. <laughs> and I've got to say, Annette, it's so nice to hear somebody actually saying schadenfreude correctly because the, the word schadenfreude is used an awful lot in Britain these days for some reason. Yeah, I won't say it, though, because I don't have any, but, yeah, it's not that easy to pronounce. <laughs> yeah. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Also, don't forget the new Culture Bunker on Saturdays where we look at the world of pop culture. This week we spoke to the remarkable John Cooper Clark, and if you need a respite and an escape route from the modern world, then that is the place to go. If you like this podcast, please do forward it to three friends to spread the word about the bunker. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon to get each episode early without adverts and all kinds of extras too. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. 
Now, before we go, it's time for some shouts to our latest Patreon backers. Very many thanks and best wishes to Philip Howells, Matthew Highland and David Curran. Many thanks and the very best from me too, Leslie Reed, Robert Robertson, Stuart Griffith. And finally, hello and a big thank you from me to Melanie Nichols, James Newman and Owen O'Daly. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Gavin Hesler and Marie Leconte. The assistant producer was Jan Lasofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>